0: Connecticut Democrats, or connecticut as they have never been called. Welcome back to the latest episode of Connecticut-crats, the CT Democrats podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike Cerulli.
1: And I'm David Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. So
0: Dave, this week's episode is a very special one for really one reason, which is that I've never interviewed someone on this show who represents me at any level. But today, sitting in Storrs, Connecticut, I got to interview the representative in the state legislature of Storrs, Connecticut, Representative Greg Haddad.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. So he's your local guy. So was he uh, was he canvassing you for any votes?
0: You know, he did tell me that I am actually his average voter. His average age of the average voter in his district is 20 years old. Is That's that right? me. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm the average Greg Haddad voter. Um, And I will 100% be, uh, you know, voting for him next year. So we also had a great conversation about uh, the topic of the day, which is redistricting here in Connecticut.
1: I'm sure he's paying a lot of attention to demographics all around the state these days. You're right. He is the chair, is he not, of the the redistricting or co-chair, I suppose, of the redistricting committee, which, as I'm sure you'll discuss in Connecticut, is totally bipartisan.
0: Yes, yes. It is an eight-person committee, which could turn into a nine-person commission. We had a very long conversation about the difference between a committee and a commission and what the state constitution has to say about the difference between those two things and just really got in the the weeds. And to be quite honest with you, I didn't know too much about this, as you might be able to tell from my interview. I didn't know too much about this before I talked to him and he gave me and hopefully all of you an education on how we will reassign and redistrict congressional seats and state legislature seats.
1: Now, of course, Connecticut is uh, quite different from say, oh, I don't know, Texas or Georgia or a bunch of other states where this is an extremely partisan process. So I spoke some time ago with Michael Lee of the Brennan Center. He's also a professor at NYU and he uh, is an absolute national expert on uh, the redistricting process. Talk a little bit about some of the bills before Congress that could uh, address some of this if they see the light of day in the Senate and uh, some of the efforts going on around the country and some of the fears or problems that it could present over the next 10 years. It's a daunting topic, the one that we're gonna dive into right here on this episode of Connecticut.
0: So folks, I am so proud and glad to welcome to the podcast today, uh, I guess my state representative while I'm up here in stores, uh, Representative Greg Haddad. Representative Haddad, welcome to the show.
2: Um, I'm really glad to be here with you. It's um, We have a lot of work ahead of us as uh, and uh, which we'll talk about today and it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff that really only happens once every 10 years.
0: So describe for the viewers and listeners who are I mean, most of our listeners are pretty politically aware, but what is so special about this year in politics? And like you said, this ten-year cycle. What are you guys? What are you guys doing this year?
2: So you know, as we know, every year the, the, the U.S. Census um, happens, and so that was uh, initiated in April of 2020. Um, the data has just recently been uh, released to states. Um, and we really get down to, you know, the main issue of, uh, you know, the principle of one, one vote, one person, right? We, we on a 10-year basis, we um, look at all of the legislative districts. It's for the state Senate and for the state House and also for Congress and work to make sure that there are equal numbers of people um, in each one of the districts. Um, and, and that preserves this idea that, like, some, some folks in Connecticut shouldn't have more of a say. Uh than, than other folks. So, so we just completed that, cen- you know, that census was completed by the US Census Bureau. They sent us the data. Um, our constitution has a process that, that's bipartisan. Um, and so we have a, a bipartisan committee, it's called the Reapportionment Committee. Um, and they are tasked with the responsibility of coming up with new maps uh, for the state house and for the state senate and for Congress. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I was pleased to be appointed to that um, committee by uh, the Speaker of the House, Tom, you know Matt Ritter, um, and uh, currently serve as the co-chairman, along with uh, a Republican from the State Senate, uh, Senator Kevin Kelly. Well,
0: that's outstanding. And so you mentioned the maps that are being redrawn this year, which are redrawn every 10 years, State House, State Senate, and, and our congressional or five congressional districts. Um, you know, I think. I'm 20, so I, I don't really remember the last time this happened. Um, will we be seeing any like significant changes? Let's let's talk first about the, those congressional maps. I think people are pretty yeah. familiar with yeah. the five districts.
2: Well, well you know, at the congressional level, um, yeah, you, you know, the, the population in Connecticut grew by uh, a little over one percent, and so it's not that not that dramatic. There there are some shifts in where that population is in Connecticut, and so. Um, broadly speaking, you know, we saw a population growth in you know, four areas, one being Fairfield County. We saw a very strong population growth in Fairfield County, and so that'll impact the 4th Congressional District. Um, we saw um, strong growth in, in New Haven um, and also in Waterbury, and so that'll impact the 3rd and the 5th. We saw growth in the ring suburbs around Hartford, although that, you know, that, um, you know, the growth that we saw in Stamford and in, in New Haven and in Waterbury didn't, didn't translate to the city part of Hartford. But it did uh, seem to impact, um, you know, some ring suburbs around Hartford. And so those four places, you know, Waterbury, the ring suburbs around Hartford, New Haven, and, uh, and Fairfield County is where our state grew in population. Um, everywhere else, almost virtually everywhere else outside of those four areas declined in population. And so we see, you know, the biggest of all uh, the population, you know, the congressional district that we're in and uh, that I represent, um, part of, uh, in Mansfield and that you're, you're sitting in now, the second congressional district saw a population decline. Um, so that means that in order to even out the numbers, um, you know, the, the, the second congressional district will have to grow in, uh, in its size to encompass uh, more people. Um, the fourth congressional district will have to shrink um, in size. Um, and, you know, it's less noticeable in the other three congressional districts, but they'll have to be adjusted a little bit here and there. But, but somehow, um, you know, those two changes have to happen and that'll cause a ripple or a domino effect that'll, that'll impact those other districts as well. And sort of piecing all that together will be, um, um, one of the, one of the three tasks that the reimportionment commission will, uh, will undertake, um, in the next phase of redistricting.
0: Very interesting. And I'm, I'm, when I'm not up here in stores, I'm down in the fourth congressional district. So it's <laughs> pretty, I mean, it's good to see population growth. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure Jim Himes, uh, wishes he wasn't about to have part of
2: his district shrunk. Um, well, so, and actually, there's, there's, there, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you're a legislator, it actually tends to be a little bit easier to accept the fact that your, your district will shrink. You'll still represent the same people right, uh, right. in a likelihood that you had represented. It's harder to, to add people to your district, um, you know, because <laughs> yeah. than, than those are new people you need to introduce yourself to. But we'll mm-hmm. see how it turns out.
0: And how fine are the, like, how precise are these adjustments, right? Like I've I've done a lot of campaigning for Jim Himes and, you know, understanding that certain parts of certain towns aren't in his district and certain parts are. And uh, there are, I think uh, Johanna Hayes is in a similar situation where she covers certain parts of certain, like how precise is it? Are you guys literally looking at maps of towns and streets and precincts or is it more, uh, you know, We have to
2: build, we have to build um, our districts using census blocks. And so they're, they're pretty small. Uh, units of um, uh, geographic units that are given to us by the Census Bureau, Uh, the state constitution indicates that they would like us uh, to consider municipal boundaries to the greatest extent possible when we're putting together districts. Um, But but one of the interesting things is that when we redistrict at the congressional level, um, we leave no, um, there is no margin of error. Um, we will take this, the, the population of the state of Connecticut, we will divide it by five, and that is precisely the number of, of people that we will put in each congressional district. Um, you know, we, we, in the last uh, go-round 10 years ago, the five congressional districts had, had exactly the same number of people. I think the number was divisible by five, so uh, they had exactly the same number of people. When we do the state house and the state senate um, seats because we're trying to respect municipal boundaries. There's a little bit more leeway um, granted there, and so there's a, a margin of error, if you will, um, that gets agreed upon pretty early. Um, but we, um, but the, you know, the, those districts will be uh, the same size, you know, give or take, you know, 100 or uh, 150 people or so.
0: Yeah. And once we get into those districts, uh, there are some funky looking uh, districts on there, uh, you know, especially as I'm sure, you know, down in Fairfield County, like the 28th district, 26th. I mean, there's seven towns in some of these districts. Um, so I guess we'll move then to the sort of buzzword of the day, which I'm sure, again, a lot of, a lot of our listeners are familiar with, which is gerrymandering, right? Um, yeah. How does a district come to look like the 28th Senate districts or, you know, one of these Senate districts where there's kind of snakes through different towns and even some of the state house districts. So first of all, what is partisan gerrymandering and what does that maybe look like in Connecticut and what are you doing to mitigate it or or not mitigate it?
2: So one of the things that's unique about Connecticut, I think, um, is that we're we're one of the few states that does this on a bipartisan basis. And so um, one of the things I think I can say confidently is that you don't see Um, partisan gerrymanders the way that you would see that in other states. Um, You know, we have equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans um, on the committee um, and and also on the subsequent commission, Um, although there's, um, uh, we'll get to process-wise, there's an opportunity to break the tie there. Um, But for the most part, you know, when we have put together districts, it's done on a bipartisan basis, uh, negotiation through negotiation with both Democrats and Republicans. Now, that's not the, I, it's not a non to say it's a nonpartisan process. Um, many states around the country have put together nonpartisan or you know uh, commissions where citizens, uh, not based on party, are selected um, and put together new maps. Um, and that's a relatively new phenomena. Um, but it remains to be seen how, how, you know, how they do much, if they do much better or worse than what we do here. But what I can guarantee you won't see is, you know, one party or the other um, putting a map together that tries to limit the influence of the other party um, once you look at all of the districts. And that can be done very effectively. And that's what we see in a lot of states around the country where a part of the redistricting process is in the hands of just one party. Um, you, you, you will see some odd-looking districts, but, you know, again, there's, you know, the Constitution, there's, you know, there are a number of C words that we'll use that are considered when we're putting together districts. Um, the Constitution being one, um, it asks us to respect municipal boundaries. Um, it's, a, it's a standard principle that uh, districts should be contiguous. In other words, you know, that there shouldn't be an island over here that gets added to a district that's over there. They have to be Contiguous and share a border. Um, they we oftentimes put a premium on um, uh, on a, a, a measure of compactness. You know where you where you, things look like a square or a circle as much as possible, so that the district isn't um, strung out over a, 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 a great distance. Um, and uh, a couple of two other C's that I think um, weigh on us a lot. One of them being communities of interest. Um, you know, it's a pretty well-established principle that communities of interest should not be divided if that can be avoided. Um, and that gives communities of interest the, the, you know, the ability to have greater influence in the democratic process. And so sometimes a community of interest could be um, an ethnic or a racial group sometimes a community interest could be a, a, you know a, a campus or a school district you know communities of interest can be a lot of things but we try not to di- purposefully divide right. uh, communities of interest to sort of limit their influence so describe um, how uh,
0: I find that interesting because I, I live in Trumbull which is the 22nd district and uh, you know we all of Trumbull and part of Bridgeport describe how that community of interest concept works in like a place like Bridgeport um, where people might have the impression that it's a partisan gerrymander when really what it is, is it's, I think, at least of my understanding of it, is that it's trying to adhere by that community of interest principle. Explain how that works in a place like Bridgeport.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, so obviously, especially in the cities, I mean, there are oftentimes there are neighborhoods um, where, you know, people sort of congregate. So there might be, you know, an Hispanic neighborhood, for example, or, or an African American neighborhood. And, and, and without using race as the only criteria, um, it, but as one criteria, we try to work to make sure that Communities of interest, let's say the Hispanic community or the Black community in a city, has the opportunity to elect um, a state representative that comes from that community. And so, sometimes those um, communities just aren't um, as compact as you'd like them to be, mm-hmm. or you think that they might be. And so, that you you will see, um, you know, in that instance where the community of interest um, criteria will trump compactness. Um, as a criteria that's being used to sort of put together a district. But it, but it allows a community um, its rightful place to have a seat at the table um, and to be represented um, and represented well um, at the state capitol.
0: I was saying then was, the last, yeah, the last, last word I'll that?
2: just mention is continuity, which also impacts this a lot too. And I, 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 this isn't really about um, about protecting incumbents as much as it's about protecting um, individuals' ability to to continue to be represented um, by um, you, you know within in a district that they can have some you know they can rely on, um, and so um, in fact the state supreme court when they put when they drew the congressional districts um, ten years ago um, they they paid some attention to what the status quo was, um, and they said you know the, the the idea here is really to make the adjustments. To, to equalize the districts, but not, not necessarily to write a, a radically different map um, that sort of scrambles the mind of voters um, and upends their expectations about uh, being represented by, with, with neighboring communities that they've come um, to, um, uh, that they've, they've grown accustomed to being represented with um, or, or by individuals who they've elected um, to the State House or the State Senate or to Congress. Um, that they've become familiar with, right? So the idea is, you know, that voters deserve um, some level of reliability and continuity of representation, um, and so we try not to scramble the map. Uh, really, more out of respect to voters than to uh, to individuals.
0: That's very interesting, and uh, and like you said, not to protect obviously someone who's been there for twenty years, but to give the voter the you know the ability to be at least voting for you know in, in consistent elections. Um, yeah. and that could mean reelecting a incumbent could not mean that. So, um, but
2: but but all of these criteria come together, right? right so it's right. Um, it's really a balancing act, um, and uh, you know a lot of that balancing act comes from from case law, where um, the Supreme Court and other other courts have ruled on the constitutionality of, of of different district lines, and certainly there have been in other states districts that were drawn that um, kind of defy logic and um, you, you have been found to be unconstitutional and have, you know, the courts have asked uh, the, the, the various bodies to redraw their lines. That hasn't happened in Connecticut. Um, and I hope that it doesn't happen in Connecticut but I think it's really about finding the right balance uh, between all of those competing interests to come up with a plan that um, is perceived um, as being fair uh, to the public um, first and foremost. Um, and, um, and that, that's really just, that's really taking in all of these things into consideration and coming up with plans that, that makes sense for everybody.
0: Outstanding. And I will say to our listeners, uh, if you want to see how bad it can get, uh, I think, I don't forget if it's redistrict or 538 it has like a hall of fame of gerrymandered congressional districts. And some of these districts look like, you know, Rorschach tests. <laughs> it's, it's quite yes. incredible. Um, and, right. and thankfully we don't have, I mean, if you look at the Connecticut districts, uh, they look pretty, you know, contiguous and, and and compact and all the all the seas we talked
2: about. So yeah. t- I mean, there there are instances when a district um, will look a little odd in Connecticut. And mm. sometimes it's a result of trying to preserve the compactness um, and uh, and communities of interest in a lot of towns around it. Right. And so, you you know, you, you get in a situation where if you start, you um, Uh, you know, overemphasizing any one of these criteria for any one district, um, it has a ripple effect that could have a a negative impact on uh, on another districts around it. And so it really is, um, you you know, the final word, I guess, you see what I guess we'll use as a compromise. Right. Um, Yeah, the the, the members of the committee and the subsequent commission uh, work to find a compromise where we don't expect every district to be um, perfect under all of these criteria, but certainly, on balance when you step back and you look at the map. And, and increasingly, we have tools that, that, that allow us to do this. You can look at this statistical analysis that says, we've done a pretty good job at balancing all these factors.
0: We now throw things over to Dave for his interview with the Brennan Center's Michael Lee.
1: We're joined today by the Senior Counsel at the Democracy Program for the Brennan Center, which is at NYU. Michael Lee, thank you for joining us, an expert on uh, uh, redistricting in the United States.
3: Well, thanks for having me, glad to be here.
1: Um, So in a sense, we're talking about gerrymandering. Uh, Gerrymandering is nothing new. uh, The the word dates back to, I think, the the 18th century or early 19th century. Um, But has it gotten worse? It, it, okay, assuming it's bad, has it gotten worse in recent years?
3: So you're absolutely right that gerrymandering is something that has played us since the very beginning of the country. In fact, it, it existed before um, the term gerrymandering even existed back when the country was founded. Uh, Patrick Henry of give me liberty or give me death fame. Um, was governor of Virginia and hated a man named James Madison and tried to gerrymander Virginia's very first congressional map so that James Madison couldn't win a seat in Congress. Um, and so it's something that, you know, even the, the founding generation um, was willing to do. But, but you're also right that it it, it has gotten worse and is has the potential for getting much worse. And that's because, um, you know, in the old days, you could draw maps by hand um and so you would draw three or four or five maps and you would pick the best one out of the three or four or five you also had limited data so you didn't know that much about voters um you know unless you had sort of on the ground knowledge about you know how you know like john smith over there is like you know a you know an infrequent voter or something like that you 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 know you had to really rely on sort of a lot of you know um you know that kind of knowledge Um, but now like map drawers will have access to Computers that can churn out hundreds of thousands of maps. Um, you can choose among the hundreds of thousands. They also have access to big data, um, which, you know, if you think about all the stuff that you know, it's based on what kind of car you drive, what you search for on Instagram, you know, what magazines you subscribe to, all of the stuff that you know, political campaigns and marketers use to sort of target you. Um, you know, they they could develop very sophisticated profiles about how likely a Democrat you are. Um, and then, how likely you are to turn out? You know, are you a midterm voter or are you not a midterm voter? And all of that enables you to go down and draw districts really with micro precision. And well, in the past, we used to see that districts sometimes gerrymanders would sometimes fail in the middle of the decade because you know you were using crude tools. Now, the gerrymanders that are drawn tend to stick for the whole of the decade, and so that really um, you know almost in some ways renders elections meaningless.
1: Um the same tools that are used to draw majority minority districts right they they can be you know
3: you know it's a it's a slightly different uh, analysis there when you're talking about drawing um you know uh, S- 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 section two districts under the voting rights act you know you do sort of like you you do want to make sure that they perform um you know so if there is liability that a state has because um it um you know there, you know there's uh, racially polarized voting and minorities would have a hard time winning. You know, you do want to make sure that minority districts perform. And it, it sometimes is hard to do that um, because you know there's a you know a lot of variability and like there in the past have been districts where um, you know a minority group it looks good for a minority group on paper but doesn't actually come out that way.
1: Because um recently the House, I think uh did they vote on HR1? Yeah they did yeah, the, they
3: hu- voted- the house the House uh, the House voted on HR1 and, yeah, and Democrat still
1: Yeah. The one Democrat who voted against it was an African-American representative from uh, Mississippi, and that was his concern, if I'm not mistaken. But um, what's in H.R. 1 that may uh, alleviate some of the really, really, uh, you know, you see those maps like insane districts that are that are super Republican or in a state give one party or the other. Usually it's the Republican Party, a almost certain advantage in elections. What's in H.R. 1 to sort of alleviate some of that?
3: So HR one, um, you know, in addition to like all kinds of really great reforms on things like voter registration and early voting, um, it has a number of redistricting reforms. And you know, any of these reforms by itself would be a landmark um, piece of legislation. The fact that they're packaged together in one bill um, is just wow, right? You know, I mean? and and I'll start with the the fact that HR one bans partisan gerrymandering by statute. You know, the Supreme Court uh, in twenty nineteen said that you can't bring federal partisan gerrymandering claims in federal court under the federal constitution. Um, but Congress has a power under the Elections Clause to set the rules for how congressional districts are drawn and what are the rules that HR1 um, chooses to enact is a ban on partisan gerrymandering. It would ban um, maps that both discriminate uh, uh, with intent, to, that are drawn with the intent to discriminate, but also maps that sort of have an undue effect in favor of one party or the other. And it's a really robust formula that is easy to apply and that would have struck down um, very quickly, some of the the most egregious gerrymanders last decade, like the thirteen-five pro-Republican gerrymander in Pennsylvania, a 50-50 state, or the 10-3 uh, pro-Republican gerrymander in North Carolina, get another 50-50 state, um, you know, and, and you know, it could, it, it would have been groundbreaking last decade. And so there, there's a ban on partisan gerrymandering um, that is very robust. Um, in addition, there are enhanced protections for communities of color, um, you know, Uh, pulling back on some of the the case law where the Supreme Court has, you know, missing, you know, you know, made it harder for communities of color to um, win districts under the Voting Rights Act and and other laws. It's it's, it's said, no, this is what we wanted in Supreme Court, you got it wrong. Um, It also would make the process more transparent. It would require, for example, that the data used to draw maps be made publicly available and that people have a, a chance to comment on maps. Um, before they're passed, and that you know to give an example of how people abuse this in Pennsylvania in 2011 um, they did not introduce the actual congressional map until the day that it was to be voted on in the committee and they not only voted it out of committee they put it on the floor of the state senate in Pennsylvania and passed it out of the state senate in a matter of hours so Democrats and the press and you know um, voters had like literally a matter of hours to look at our map and this would HR1 would say, no, you can't go that fast. You've got to make everything available. People have to be able to comment on it. They have to be able to like analyze the maps. Um, and then HR1 also would um, make litigating about redistricting cases um, easier and faster. It, uh, you know, uh, A lot of times states use litigation as a means of delaying the redrawing of maps. Um, sometimes courts sit on the cases for a long time. The, in Texas, the redistricting case, mm-hmm. there last decade, the court sat on it for three years. Um, before ruling, and so that's you know, multiple election cycles that you're using maps that are ultimately found to be discriminatory. Um, HR01 would say, No, you've got to prioritize redistricting cases, and it would make it harder for states to use re- litigation in, um, you know, strategically. Um, and so those are, um, the, the you know, that's a high level, and then last, it would require, um, uh, um use of independent commissions to draw maps. Now, there's a question, depending on when the Senate passes it, whether there's enough time to implement independent commissions for this decade. Um, the other reforms certainly could be implemented by themselves, but at least starting in 2031, um, or perhaps this decade, um, there would be independent commissions for every state to draw its congressional maps.
1: Gotcha. Um, Connecticut's process is inherently bipartisan. I remember we're a state with the you know, Democratic trifecta and, and we have right now very large majorities in both the House and Senate. However, there will be an equal number of Democrats and Republicans drawn the map. And uh, last time it came down to the, the state level legislative districts were fine, but then at the federal, the Congressional's were a bit of a fight. So it ultimately went to a judge uh, or a special master was the title of the, uh, the person who made the decision. Um, but other states, it's messy. What states are you keeping an eye on this year in particular?
3: So you know, this time the this decade the redistricting landscape in some ways is better. Um, you know, some of the states that have really bad gerrymanders um, last time, like Michigan, um, have seen reforms. Michigan now will use an independent commission. Other states, um, the single party control has been broken up by the election of Democratic governors. So states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. So parts of the country look better but then there's the states where democrats fell short um in both 2018 and 2020 at trying to win a seat at the table and those are mostly in the south so texas georgia florida north carolina um where um um you know democrats didn't win governorships in you know georgia or florida they didn't win legislative chambers in texas um, or georgia or any of the other states and so um, Republicans once again will control the process, and we know that whenever one party controls the process, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, that the you know the first thing that they will think about is how does this map look for my party? Um, and Republicans have a chance to perhaps even win back all of the you know enough seats to take back the U.S. House out of those four southern states alone. So that those are states that we regard as high risk for for gerrymandering both and racially discriminatory maps. Um, and you know, um, in part because they're single party control, but in part because almost all of the growth is being provided by people of color, they're all politically volatile. So there's a reason to put your thumb on the scale. Because if you don't, and you draw fair maps, um, you know, Democrats would have a fair shot at winning some of those districts. They wouldn't win all of them, but they would have a fair shot. And they would rather put their thumb on the scale and and sort of kneecap um, you know these emerging multiracial coalitions in places like Georgia and Texas.
1: Oh, that makes me sad. It makes me sad whenever I think about this stuff. Like it's important to get this information out, but it bugs me. Uh in, in Connecticut, we use basically the same congressional maps that we used uh, in the first in the in the in the aughts. And in 06, three of the five were Republicans. And now all five uh, are Democrats um, because of just you know organizing and and shifts in voter preference and and all that. It's it's not to do with redrawing the maps. Don't know what'll happen this time, but um, we will see. Um, again, Michael Lee is uh, with the Brennan Center at NYU and um, an absolute expert on this stuff. Thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to, glad to be here. Now go back to the second half of Michael's interview with Greg Haddad, representative from Mansfield.
0: So we talked about a lot about guiding principles, a little bit of the history behind that. Let's talk about process now, um, which is the part I understand least, to be quite honest with you. So yeah. how so how will this uh, move forward from here? We have uh, the committee that you sit on, um, yeah. and what you will originate a map and then send it to the legislature. How does this work?
2: Yeah, so I you know the le- the, the the process is set out in the state constitution, and what it says first um, is that in the year after a census, uh, the the legislature would impanel uh, redistricting. Uh, it's called a reapportionment. Committee. It's sort of a uh, misnamed committee because reapportionment is the process that Congress uses to determine how many Congress people um, are assigned to each state. But the redistricting committee or the reapportionment committee uh, gets established in February after an election year, after a a census year. um, And it has until September 15th to draw up uh, new maps for Congress, for state House and for state Senate and to present that to the state legislature uh, for adoption by a supermajority. I think it's a two-thirds vote that's required to adopt the new maps. Because the census numbers were so delayed this year, that will not happen. Like, we just got the new census numbers in mid-August. It just becomes, you know, practically impossible to draw new maps uh, before our September 15th deadline. So we will miss that deadline, and the Constitution contemplates that and says if, they, if the committee misses its deadline, um, will impanel a commission um, similarly comprised of two people from you know each caucus and each chamber. So it's you know uh, four Democrats and four uh, Republicans and four Democrats, um, and for you know, four people from the House and four people from the Senate, equally divided. Um, and they'll put together, um, they get put together at, under a commission. Um, and the commission's uh, first task is to select a ninth person to add to their numbers. Um, By consensus, uh, who gets added to the commission, and and that nine person commission then can draw the maps. And if it gets a majority vote at the commission level, it doesn't come to the legislature again, it just gets to be the new adopted map. Um, What's important about all of that as well is that there are hearings and there are opportunities for members of the public to address the, the committee. In fact, we just announced earlier today a series of public hearings that will start next week and go the week after. Um, and that's where the public can, can uh, address the committee um, and create a public record that the committee and the commission can rely on to put together um, strong maps. Um, and, and, if, and if the committee and the commission both fail to meet the September 15th or the November 30th deadline, um, then uh, the responsibility falls to the court system, um, and the state Supreme Court would have the authority to uh, use uh, its own procedure to draw new maps. That that has happened only rarely in Connecticut, um, but there have been impasses um, that have occurred in the past that have necessitated uh, court action. Um, we don't anticipate that that will happen this year.
0: Good, good. That was, was going to be my next question. Um, so basically, we will. When do you think we will know uh, in terms of campaigning and in terms of you know or, organizing to get out the vote? When do you think we will know? Uh, what the districts are going to look
2: yeah, like. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, that the, given the task ahead, it's very likely that the commission will adopt um, maps and they'll do that before November 30th. Um, so before, by, by around the time of Thanksgiving or so of this year, um, I think that um, communities will know what their uh, state house and state senate districts look like and where they are in terms of the congressional seats as well. Um, smaller, you know, communities that elect um, local boards and commissions by district will also have to go through that process. Typically, they do that after the uh, after this is completed. Uh, but you know, because they like to, oftentimes use um, you know state house lines that might divide a community is uh, at the same border for a voting precinct. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So sometimes they wait until after. But um, local communities who elect. Um, local boards and commissions by district will have to will have to do that work as well and that'll probably they'll probably take them a couple of months thereafter
0: well that makes a lot of sense and I'm, I'm actually thinking about it now and I think there's i can think of a few towns <laughs> that do that um, so switching gears a little bit after this all, all the maps are drawn after they're released and, and approved um, are you still going to be yukon state representative <laughs>
2: <laughs> well I hope so I mean I, again uh, this is, I think is going to go to the commission process. Right. Um, I, I, uh, it, it'll, you know, it's up to the speaker and the majority leader of the, of the house to, um, select folks. I was you know, pleased to have been appointed along with my, my colleague, uh, representative Exum from West Hartford to serve uh, on the committee. Um, who are the two I, Senate
0: uh, Democrats?
2: Uh, yeah, that, that's, she's a Democrat from West Hartford, right. And, um, The other members of the committee, I mean, I will mention is uh, Representative Candelora, um, who's the Republican leader from the House and Representative Perillo from Shelton. Um, uh, Senator Kelly is the Senate chair. Um, He serves with with, uh, Senator Formica from the Senate Republican caucus. Um, And currently it's Mary Abrams, uh, the Senator from Meriden and uh, Senator McCrory from Hartford who represent the Senate Democrats. But all of those appointments are made again um, at, you know, when we, when the committee terminates uh, and get moves into the commission phase. Um, And so um, uh, it remains to be seen who will be appointed to the commission.
0: Mm -hmm. So um, I have to ask, because I ask all the guests on the podcast this sort of about the area that they represent or the area that they serve. um, And you obviously represent stores Mansfield area um, sort of, totally changing gears here. What are some, aside from like dairy bar and, you know, the obvious places, what are some of your favorite spots around Yukon and around and around Mansfield?
2: Well, well you've hit on the first one. I mean, I have an eight year old daughter and uh, you know, between us, we conspire in our family to visit the dairy bar as often as we can. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't, I don't need a big reason um, to go to the Yukon dairy bar. Um, It's a, you know, it's one of the special places in my district. I mean, I, I think Mansfield Hollow, uh, which is a state park, um, mm-hmm. in the Southern end of town. Um, yeah, you, know, you know, it's, it's interesting because it was, I, I went to the 50th anniversary of the dam, or probably closer to 60th anniversary of the dam before we built, before that dam was built as a flood control project, you, you know, the lakes that sort of dominate Mansfield Hollow state park, um, were really just rivers. Um, mm. so the landscape has changed quite a bit. And, um, it's a really special place. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot of sort of pristine, um, you know, lake um, uh, stuff. It's a great place to go kayaking and or, or to picnic and it, and it, you know, those lakes have not been sort of plagued as many lakes in Connecticut are by uh, overpopulation and overbuilding around the, uh, the shores of the lake. And so, you know, you can, you can actually paddle into the mi- middle of the lake um, at night and not see uh, porch lights or uh, or, or you know, driveway lights, hmm. house lights um, in the middle of those lakes. And it's really, I think this really makes it pretty special. And so it's it's kind of a cool place. Those are two of my favorite places in Mansfield.
0: So maybe then dairy bar, pick up a quart of ice cream and go take the kayak out in the middle of the night.
2: And we yeah. forced to eat the quart because it won't last long out there in the middle of the lake. Yeah. So, right, yeah, right. There's worse things to happen to have to uh, figure out a way to eat a full quart of Yukon ice cream.
0: Right. And how has it been? I mean, for, I know for me, just being back up here in the last week, seeing everyone on campus has been so cool. And it's the, the whole area is sort of coming alive again. How's that been for you over the last year, you know, seeing it sort of empty out uh, in 2020 and then sort of trickle back in 2021 to now where, I mean, if you walk around campus, it's basically, you know, like, like pre-pandemic times.
2: Yeah, well, you you know, I mean, the students are a big part of our community, obviously. I mean, uh, one of the interesting things about my district uh, demographically is that, um, of course, it includes the undergraduate population, residential population on campus, um, and many students who live off campus. And so my house district has about 23,000 people in it, um, and close to 15,000, if not more, of those are undergraduates at the University of Connecticut. So my district is a predominantly uh Yukon know, district, Yukon uh, student district. As a result of that, well, you know, most of my colleagues have an average age in their district of about forty-five years old, about mm-hmm. very close to what the statewide average is. Um, the average age in my district is just twenty years old.
0: Hey, that's me.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's you. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, ten years ago or twelve years ago, when I was first elected. Um, uh, you know, my district statistically the youngest uh, in the state. Looked around to find the, you know, that that the hippest guy that they could find to serve as their representatives, um, um, and got me. I don't know if they <laughs> met that criteria. Yeah. But um, but I I've really enjoyed um, you know, and I think our community enjoys um, you know, being the host community at the University of Connecticut. There there are ups and downs in that relationship. <laughs> um, you, you know, UConn is a is a very influential and. And resourceful uh, state institution, and so sometimes there are, you know, disagreements along the way about town development and and mm-hmm. and, and development on campus. But but by and large, you know, I, I mean, I, I feel like we live in a a terrific community that is really a nice um, match between you know full-time residents of, of Mansfield, who many of whom are engaged with uh, employment at the university and other places, and, and the student body at UConn too. Yeah. I mean, I, frankly speaking, we wouldn't have uh, world-class basketball, both men's and women played in Mansfield, if it weren't for the presence of the, of the university, we wouldn't have world-class um, cultural events at Jorgensen um, um, or, uh, you know, I mean, all of the other things, you know, you know, great, you know, museums of art, uh, all that sort of stuff that the university brings to our community that really enrich all of our lives um, without being the host institution, uh, the host community to, to, to UConn. So I, I think it's a great place. It's where I chose to live, uh, just for that reason. And um, I think many people in Mansfield live here uh, because um, because there's you know because there's such diversity in the population and and in and experiences that are that are afforded to us in large part because of the presence of the university. Mm-hmm.
0: And the university would be one of those classic communities of interest, right? <laughs>
2: University is a classic community of interest. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, and in the past, uh, you know, campus has been divided between state Senate districts. Really? Um, 20 years ago or so, uh, you know, the 19th, 19th Senate district um, uh, and uh, the border between the 19th and the 29th went right through campus. And so students had uh, sort of struggled to figure out, um, you know, who, who what their ballot would look like and where mm-hmm. they needed to go to vote um in order to um to cast the ballot accurately and so that's yeah. been avoided over the last past 20 years my hope is that um like a lot of community interests around the state that we will preserve uh, the integrity of the campus um when we um uh, find drug draw, draw new districts this year
0: do you remember where the line was was it like if you lived in north campus you had one state senator in south i, campus I don't anymore?
2: remember precisely where the name was but it's roughly a, an east-west split um Got it. Through campus with the with the western part of the campus belonging in the 19th senate district um, along with mansfield depot and some neighborhoods that are along route 44 out towards coventry um, and the remainder of campus was in the 29th
0: interesting well we're glad that we're represented wholly by may flexor now um, and, and and looking forward to having both of you back here on campus soon uh, for, for uh, some college Democrats meetings. Um, yeah, well, so.
2: we, we enjoy going over there and talking to students at all of the organizations. And uh, May has done a great job um, with me, I think, at representing um, the, the, you know, the very unique you know, constituency that we have, which is uh, not just, the, again, the full-time residents of Mansfield, but also the, um, you know, all of the students that come and, and call Mansfield home for the four years that there at UConn.
0: Mm-hmm. And we certainly think you, do, you both do a great job as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show to explain this complicated process. I'm sure uh, there'll be more questions that come up over the over the course of the next few months. Where can people find you? Are you on social media or uh, website? Where, where can folks find you?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, the best way to reach me, uh, you know, is probably just through the, you know, the Connecticut General Assembly website. Uh, you know, I have a long email address for my homepage. Mm-hmm. I, I um, <laughs> you you can probably find it and post it as a graphic if you want, but the best way to reach me is go to cga.ct.gov. And there's a directory there of all the state representatives. Um, You can also go there to find um, the webpage for the redistricting committee. um, And that webpage has a lot of helpful um, resources on it. Um, It's also where we'll make our announcements for uh, public hearings and meetings uh, and that sort of stuff. And so all of the information should be on that page. Um, and it's where you can submit testimony as well. Last thing, I, I will just mention this really briefly. There are some great third party websites um, that you can go to where you can draw your own districts mm-hmm. uh, for state house or state Senate or Congress. Uh, Dave's redistricting.org um, is one of them. A districtor without the ER at the end. It's just district yep. with an R in the end dot org is another. These are terrific resources that weren't available to the public ten, just 10 years ago. You can go there, they have all of the data, uh, all of the census blocks. You can draw districts um, and present a plan, send it to the committee, um, uh, it as public testimony. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're apt to say that we don't know where the inspiration will come for the solutions that we need to find to draw new maps and they could come from you um, so draw a map, send it in, we welcome that kind of input um, and you can, go, you can use those third party uh, websites uh, with, with pretty powerful tools um, mm-hmm. to be able to draw those maps.
0: Well, outstanding. So we'll, uh, to all the, I don't know if you know, there's like this like internet subculture of like map makers who do like mapping for, pol- for political campaigns. So I'm sure, I'm sure some of them, yeah. I know some of them listen to the show and they'll probably uh, be really interested in maybe submitting some. some ideas. Yeah. I, I mean,
2: you know, 10 years ago, there was just one computer that was set up in the legislative office building that was available <laughs> for the public so that they could draw their own maps. Um, you know, and, and you had to be, you know, uh, uh, a, a geophysicist or a, uh, you know, a geographer in order yeah, to be yeah. able to draw maps effectively ten years ago, but that that's really been um, democratized by tenet, by technology. And so now you can go to these third-party websites, look at the data, draw maps, and they um, they, they also provide you know analyzing tools that you can you can measure each district yourself that you created uh, on those criteria, like how um, are they all contiguous? Um, are they all um, compact, you know, they have measures of compactness and Mm -hmm. you can see how well you can do. Um, If you come up with a good plan, be sure to send it to the uh, redistricting committee or the redistricting commission, um, because that's exactly the kind of thing that we like to see in terms of input from, from members of the public.
0: That was a great conversation, Dave. Uh, we, I had to sneak in some UConn talk at the end there because he's UConn's representative. But um, as you heard, he also encourages all of us to uh, submit public testimony. And actually, I didn't know this. You can actually submit your own map as a recommendation for what the committee uh, should consider.
1: That's true. In fact, I was uh, at the hearing uh, 10 years ago in, in 2011 when there was a dispute over the congressional districts and one citizen in this in this state did submit his own map and testify.
0: Uh, and that was a friend of mine, John Hartwell, who ran for Connecticut Senate a couple of times. You probably see on Twitter all the map makers that are like, you know, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll put up these very intricate maps and they make them on their laptop at home. So it'll be cool to see some of those folks hopefully get involved. Uh, with the redistricting process here in Connecticut. I
1: saw a map of Connecticut and as, when I just saw the image, I basically had a heart attack, but then it turned out it was just someone who made up their own. So uh, you can make your maps. Uh, the commission will make their maps and eventually we're gonna have some new districts for the 2022 elections at both the state and federal level.
0: And also looking forward to the next few months as we here at Connecticut Rats gear up for the municipal elections. Dave and I will be interviewing a number of municipal candidates for First Selectmen, Board of Selectmen, and Mayor, um, and we're really looking forward to talking with many of our great qualified Democratic candidates around the state.
1: So I'm looking forward to talking to all those folks running for Mayor, First selectman, Board of Ed, and everything else, and we look forward to bringing them to you on the upcoming episodes of KineticRats. Thanks for listening.